Let's go to God now in prayer and ask him for his help as we are going to now look to his word. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come to you and we pray quite simply that you would be with us in this time as we look to your word, that you would come and minister to us by your spirit as you are faithful to do. We pray quite simply that you would sustain faith in Christ, that you would confirm and strengthen our faith in your son, and that you would even impart faith to those present who might not yet trust him. We pray that in this, that you would be stirring us up by your spirit to love and good works. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Brothers and sisters, the scripture is very clear that our God is a holy God. In Isaiah chapter 6, even we hear the angels praising God with the continuous ongoing refrain of holy, holy, holy. And as God's people, we are to live in reverence of him. We are to live in awe of him. But should we, God's people, in Christ Jesus, live in dread of him? Should we live in such a way where we are afraid of him? Richard Sibbs once said that outside of Christ, God is terrible. And he is exactly right about that. And Charles Wesley, in the wonderful hymn, And Can It Be, writes these words for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. Reverence for God and safety in Christ are not mutually exclusive things. In other words, reverence for God and safety in Christ go together. Awe in God and delight in serving God go together. We're going to consider a parable today, the parable of the talents from Matthew chapter 25 that has often been, not always, but often been used to strike fear in the hearts of Christians and to unsettle them. And so I don't want to bury the lead. I don't think that serves anybody well. This parable of the talents is without doubt a call to repentance. Unless we repent and trust Christ, we will perish. It brings with it, this parable does, significant implications for how we are to serve and follow God. And it is not a parable that is meant to make Christ's sheep, those who are in him, afraid. So if you have your Bibles, open them up to Matthew chapter 25 and verse 14. If you don't have a Bible with you today, you could also find this text on a Bible application on your phone. Now might be a good time to download one of those. You'll always have the Bible with you that way. We'll be looking today at Matthew chapter 25 verses 14 to 30. A little bit of context as you're making your way there. This parable that Jesus tells is a part of a larger discourse, a larger dialogue that is often referred to as the Olivet Discourse. It is teaching that Jesus gives toward the end of his life and the final days of his life on the Mount of Olives, hence the name, the Olivet Discourse. These parables, this teaching, 
contained in this discourse is about the kingdom of heaven and what it's like. In particular, Jesus gives attention to what the kingdom of heaven will be like when he returns consummately at the end of history. In the latter part of chapter 24 of Matthew, he's been teaching that no one knows the day or the hour when the Son of Man will return at the end of history. And then in verses 1 to 13 of Matthew 25, he has told a parable about living with wisdom in light of the fact that the Son of Man is returning. These accounts in the parable even of the ten virgins in the early part of Matthew 25 is also a call to repentance. They are calls to not be foolish and believe the gospel. And then in this context, Jesus tells this parable of the talents. So listen now as I read God's word for us. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. And then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he had he who had the two talents, excuse me, made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. And here, I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had the two talents came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. And here, I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. I want us to briefly consider the parable, like in a flyover fashion. Think about the flow of it together and just quite simply what happens in these verses. At the beginning of the parable, the beginning of Matthew 25 and verse 14, Jesus says, for it will be like. He's talking again, remember, about the kingdom of heaven. That's what it is. The antecedent is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven upon my return will be like this. And then he tells this parable. He tells of a master of a household who is about to go on a journey. And he calls his servants to him. And he entrusts to these three servants his property. 
He gives different amounts to each of them according to their own ability, is what the text says in verse 15. So you can note even there that he has some kind of reasonable expectation. These guys have different ability. I'm going to entrust to them different amounts of my property. And then he goes away. And they are to do as they will with what they've been given. They're to manage it as they see fit. Then the master returns. We see his return in verse 19. After the servants have gone and done their respective things. The servant who had been given five talents went and traded and made five more. The servant who had been given two talents went and traded and gained two more. The one who had been given one talent buried his in the ground. So the master shows back up in verse 19, and he is going to settle accounts with each of his servants. There's going to be a a reckoning. He rewards the two servants who had been fruitful. They had been fruitful by investing and trading with the property that they were given. And the master rewards them for that. And he punishes the servant who had not been fruitful because he had buried the property that he had been given. So let's just make some observations here. In verses 21 and 23, let's observe something about the master and his posture toward his servants. In rewarding the two servants who had been faithful, the one who had been given five talents and the one who had been given two, the master says to each of them, not only well done, good and faithful servant, he tells each of them to enter into the joy of their master. Enter into my joy, he says. The master, in this sense, is not a hard man. On the contrary, he's a man of great joy. And he is inviting his servants into it. He wants his servants to partake of the very same joy that he has. Now we learn something about what's going on in the mind and in the heart of the wicked servant in verses 24 and 25. And we're going to come back to that in just a moment. But let's skip down to verse 29. Jesus says these words in that verse. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. So what do we make of those words? As always, it's good to interpret Scripture with Scripture. Jesus says the exact same thing, these exact same words, in two other places in the Gospel accounts. One of them in Matthew 13 and one in Mark chapter 4. In both of those respective contexts, Jesus is talking again about the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven and what it will be like. In both contexts, he has told perhaps his most famous parable, the parable of the sower. In Matthew chapter 13, right after he has told this parable, the parable of the sower, amongst other parables on the kingdom of heaven, he looks at the disciples and says this. This is Matthew chapter 13, verses 10 through 13. Listen to these words. Then the disciples came to him and said, Why do you speak to them in parables? Jesus, why do you talk to everybody in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables 
because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. For those to whom it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, more will be given, namely eternal life and blessedness. For those to whom it has not been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, even what they have will be taken away. It's Matthew 13. Mark chapter 4. Again, in the immediate aftermath of the parable of the sower, amongst other parables about the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says these words. This is Mark 4, 21 and following. And he said to them, his disciples, is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. In that context of Mark chapter 4, the lamp is Christ and the message about him. He's talking about how everything that has been hidden will be revealed. The coming of Christ is the center of God's plan of redemption. It sheds light on everything that God has been doing and will do. Jesus says, for those who have ears to hear and listen intently to the word of Christ, more will be given, namely, eternal life and blessedness. For those who do not listen, on the flip side, to the word of Christ, even what they have will be taken away. So Jesus, back here in Matthew 25 and verse 29, uses language that he has used at other points to talk about the difference between those who are a part of the kingdom of heaven and those who are not a part of the kingdom of heaven. He is describing, remember, what it will be like upon his return at the end of history. And verse 30 of Matthew 25 fits with that interpretation. The wicked servant faces judgment. The reason that I've spent some time here explaining and unpacking some of this is that sometimes the way this passage, the parable of the talents, is presented it is preached and taught as though the wicked servant is representative of Christians who are not faithful or fruitful enough. As though he represents people who are in Christ, but they don't do enough and therefore eventually face condemnation. They're in at some point, but then they mess it up. That's not how I think we should understand the text. Now, you have your Bibles in front of you, and you can judge my exposition. It seems to me, in the context of this parable, taken in context of everything else that Jesus says, the first two servants are representative of those who are in Christ, and they are representative of those who, parable of the sower, are good soil, who are fruitful, who produce a hundredfold, some 60, some 30. And it seems to me, that the last servant, the wicked servant, represents people who are not in Christ. Those who, parable of the sower, are not good soil. So this brings us back to the wicked servant. Question. What is the fundamental problem with the wicked servant? 
What's the fundamental problem? We're told the master's assessment of him is that he's wicked and slothful in verse 26. That's clear. Yet I think there's something more fundamental than that even. The fundamental problem, it seems from the text, with the wicked servant is that he misunderstands the character of his master. In other words, he doesn't know his master. That's the fundamental problem. He says, Master, in verse 24, I knew you to be a hard man. I knew you to be a hard man. He sees his master as exacting, threatening even. And in his own mind, in the servant's mind, this is what he says about himself and why he acted as he did. In his own words, in verse 25, I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. So another big question for us. As God's people, most of everybody sitting here today is consciously trusting in Christ. How is God described in Scripture toward those who are His? How is God described in Scripture toward those who are His? This isn't an exhaustive list, but this will give us an idea. He is described as a father to his children. On Father's Day, no less. And because we love fathers, we're talking about Christ today, by the way. God is described as a shepherd to his sheep. God is described as being unwavering in his steadfast and covenant love toward his people. He's described as a God who forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. He is described as a God who will blot out the sins of his people for his own sake and will remember their sins no more. And he is all of these things for us through Christ in perfect lockstep with his holiness and righteousness and justice. He is a God, we are told, who delights to save sinners. Think of Luke chapter 15, verse 7, verse 10. There is joy in heaven when one sinner repents. This is our God. Jesus tells his disciples in Luke chapter 12 and verse 32, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. It sounds familiar. Enter into the joy of your Master. It is the pleasure of God to give you, his children, the kingdom. To give you, his sheep, the kingdom. It is the Father, after all, who has charged Jesus with saving all of his people and not losing any of them. Think about John chapter 6. This charge I've received from my Father, Jesus says, that I should lose nothing of all that he's given to me, but raise it up, raise them up on the last day. It is the Father who has charged Jesus with laying his life down for his sheep, John 10. Where Jesus says so beautifully that he lays his life down for the sheep, but does it of his own accord. He's not forced to do it. He has authority to lay his life down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father, he says. It is God who has justified us through Christ. And so no one can bring a charge against God's elect, Romans 8.33. Sometimes I, I think we, we can make the mistake of almost presenting God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as though there is some kind of division within the Trinity when it comes to redemption. 
It's like Jesus is gracious, Jesus is merciful, Jesus atones, Jesus accomplishes righteousness, and reluctantly the Father will then accept us because of that. Not the case. The Father, along with the Son and the Spirit, planned redemption before the world began. Redemption is His idea. It has always been the plan of God to save a people out of the mass of fallen humanity. It has always been the plan that God the Son would be their Redeemer. He would be so by becoming a human being. By being born, as Galatians 4 says, by being born under the law to redeem those who are under the law. He would be our Redeemer as a man by paying the penalty that we owe for breaking God's commands. He would satisfy God's justice. He would satisfy God's wrath. He would make atonement for sin. In the place of His people, He would do all of these things as our substitute. And God the Son, it was planned from before the world began that He would redeem His people by providing them with the righteousness they needed. They don't have it because of sin. He provides it through what He accomplishes in their place. He would, as a man, live a perfect life, obeying and fulfilling God's law in every way. He did all of this in the place of His people as our representative. All of this work of Christ, all of His merits, everything that is His is counted to sinners like us by faith. as we sometimes sing here at CBC, because His righteous life is mine and all His merits now I own, I am a child of God on high. I am adopted, loved, and known. So in thinking about a, an application, a reflection, a meditation in light of the parable of the talents, thinking about our Loving, serving, following the Lord. I would suggest this. How we understand the character of God and how we understand our relationship to Him has everything to do with how we serve Him. Let's say that again. How we understand the character of God and how we understand our relationship to Him has everything to do with how we serve Him. Listen to a little bit of Bible here. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in Him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as He is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. In Christ, God is a Redeemer. In Christ, God is our Father. In Christ, we are fully known 
and fully loved, which is flat out astonishing. I think all of us are haunted by the thought that if the former is true, fully known, there's no way the latter could be fully loved. But we are fully and truly known and fully and truly loved in Christ by our Father in heaven. We are called as his children, as the sheep of his pasture, to faithfulness. We are called to obedience. We are called to do good works. We are called to align our lives with his word. We are called to uphold the law in every good way. Christ has fulfilled it for us, and now it serves as the perfect guide for our lives, and it is summed up in these words. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. It's what we're called to. And our pursuit of faithfulness and obedience and good works is not motivated by fear. And it's not motivated by dread. We talk about these things a lot, and we talk about them a lot because they're important. Many of us have come from contexts in the world or maybe have grown up in the church where maybe explicitly, if not implicitly, we have absorbed that at least a lot of the motivation for obedience and holiness is fear. It's to escape wrath. Our faithfulness, our pursuit of that, our pursuit of obedience and our pursuit of good works and righteousness and holiness in Christ Jesus are motivated by a whole host of things, but fear and dread are not any of those things. We're motivated by love for God as well as reverence for Him and all of Him. We're motivated by love for our neighbor. As we say often, and we'll keep saying, God doesn't need your good works, but your neighbor sure does. We're motivated by joy. The hope of future joy, entering into the joy of our master, that'll motivate obedience and the pursuit of faithfulness today. And we're motivated by the joy that is ours now in Christ Jesus. The joy of the fellowship of the saints even, as we gather together and spend time together and encourage one another in the Lord. We're motivated by delight in God. We're motivated by gratitude. Father, thank you for what you have done for me in Christ Jesus. Now may I give my life, may I pour my life out as an offering to you. Not because you need it, but because you're worthy. We're motivated by safety and security. See, our God in his word puts rock under our feet in telling us that we are absolutely safe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he knows that by his spirit's work in us, that safety and security and comfort and peace actually fuels us in the Christian life. Rather than chasing after something that we don't yet have, we rest in something that is ours because Christ has given it to us by faith and we work for the good of God's honor, for the good of our neighbor. All of this grounded in the sufficiency of Christ and the perfect love of the Father toward us in Him. Think about something with me for just a moment as we conclude. When the sufficiency of Christ, when the work of Christ, atonement, 
satisfaction for sin, righteousness provided. When the love and grace and mercy of God, when those things are at the front of our minds and hearts, we are set free to work. We are set free to strive. We are set free to pray. We are set free to do stuff for the sake of Christ, for the glory of God, and for the good of people. Beginning most immediately with our brothers and sisters in the church, and we do good to all men. We serve as joyful, free children, not as slaves. We're not paralyzed by the fear that God will one day be displeased with us and turn us away. Saints, there will come a day when our master will say to us in Christ, well done. Well done. Welcome. Enter into the joy of your master. That day will come. Let that day not only give you comfort and peace right now, let that day motivate you and propel you forward as you trust Christ and seek to love your neighbor. Until then, that's what we do. We trust Jesus. We rest and abide in him. We love one another. We pray. We strive. And we work. For the good of our neighbor and to the glory of God the Father, we do. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come to you and we pray that you would work in us by your spirit. This thing called the Christian life is supernatural. Sometimes it doesn't work the way that we think in our human brains. You have told us that you will sanctify us, that you will grow us. You have told us that you, through the church, will work to stir us up to love and good works. We trust you to do those things, and we ask that you would continue the good work that you have begun in us. We know that you, the one who have called us, is faithful. We know that you will surely do it. We pray that as we continue to sing and come to cast ourselves upon the mercy of Christ at the table, that you would continue to minister to us, continue to conform us to the image of Christ, Continue to stir us up to love and good works, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.